I grew up in textiles. I grew up where we were doing 30,000 yards of cloth a day. I didn't realize the amount of safety and precautions that are taken with food when it pertains to food that we're going to eat. And then it probably shouldn't be a surprise to me, but how hard these guys and gals work from sunup to sundown 10 months a year. It's not the typical farm that I grew up on. These guys have quite the staff around them, quite the topography. Everywhere we went, there was something beautiful about it. Welcome to the Future Faster, a sustainable agriculture podcast by Nutrient Ag Solutions. With our very own Tom Daniel, Director of North America Retail and Grower Sustainable Ag, and Dr. Sally Fliss, Senior Manager, North America Sustainable Ag and Carbon. This is your opportunity to learn about the next horizon in sustainable agriculture for growers, for partners, for the planet. To us, it's not about changing what's always worked. It's about continuing to do the little things that make a big impact. On this week's episode, we're back at the Charlotte Motor Speedway with Brett Griffin, NASCAR spotter for Colleague Racing and host of the podcast Door Bumper Clear. He also hosts Leading the Field, Nutrient Ag Solutions' new video series. And we're going to talk about what he's learned from touring growing operations across North America, where the business worlds of sustainable agriculture and NASCAR racing intersect, and how NASCAR spotters help foster the teamwork that it takes to win races. But if you haven't yet, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast in your favorite app. Also, make sure you follow Nutrient Ag Solutions on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Dusty Weiss, along with Tom Daniel and Sally Fliss, and we're joined now by Brett Griffin, host of Leading the Field, Nutrient Ag Solutions' new video series, He's also the owner of Spot On Activations. He's a NASCAR spotter for Colleague Racing and the host of the podcast, Door Bumper Clear. Brent, thank you for joining us on the Future Faster Podcast. Hey, thank you guys for having me. It sounds like I'm busy when you say all that at one time. I don't know how you made time for us, if I'm being perfectly <laughs> honest here, but you're a man with a lot on your plate. Well, you guys called and I came running. Well, I really appreciate your showing up. I know Tom and Sally and the rest of the folks at Nutrient Ag Solutions do as well, but uh, we got a lot to talk about. But we wanted to start out talking about this new project that you've launched with Nutrient Ag Solutions. It's out now, a video series in partnership with Nutrient Ag Solutions titled Leading the field with Brett Griffin. So to get us started, can you elaborate a little bit on what the video series is, what you've accomplished with it, and why you decided to partner with Nutrient Ag Solutions? I'll tell you, man, I was flattered to be asked to be in the position with leading the field, to be the guy going around and telling the story of all these amazing farmers and growers throughout this country. What made me qualified to do this is that it just so happens that I love to eat. (laughs) Um, I, I love food, and I'm also a very curious guy. So it just came very instinctively to me to be able to go out to these guys operations. And I'm going to tell you something, it's operations. It's not the typical farm that I grew up on working at at Watermelons in Pageland, South Carolina. These guys have quite the staff around them, quite the topography, the acreage. I mean, just a super impressive operation that all these guys have. So, man, I got to go out meet all these awesome growers and farmers and then hear more about their story, how they got to be there. A lot of guys and gals were third and fourth generation farmers in their family. So I couldn't have felt more honored after having the opportunity to see the last three episodes that we've already launched, how well it turned out and how beautiful everybody gets to see these farms are out there. Not only U.S., we also went to Canada. So, Brett, we kind of take for granted our farming backgrounds because most of us, a lot of us that work for Nutrient Ag Solutions have some touch with the farm, right? So you're from Pageland, South Carolina, so you're not completely foreign to farmland either. I mean, it's all around you, right? So my question is, it's not foreign to you, so can you tell us about what is a summary of what you learned when you went out to visit these farms? What did you really pick up on? 
The two biggest things I probably learned, Tom, number one, uh, again, being a curious consumer, I didn't realize the amount of safety and precautions that are taken with food when it pertains to food that we're going to eat. Obviously, food grade farming versus farming to feed animals, right? So when I went to the corn farm up in Champaign, Illinois, I was blown away by what they do to keep it safe so that when you and I get it as a consumer, we don't have to worry about it. When we're on the cattle farm, you know, in Katy's, Kentucky, and I see those guys pushing 15,000 head of cattle through there in a year's time and telling me the story of how they genuinely and literally check on every calf and every cow every single day, like it's a baby in a crib, I was completely blown away. They don't want them stressed out. They want the cow to be happy. In order for us to have a healthy steak to eat, they've got to keep the cattle healthy. So that was probably my biggest takeaway on the food grade side. And then it probably shouldn't be a surprise to me, but how hard these guys and gals work from sun up to sundown 10 months a year. I mean, it seems like pretty much everywhere we went from March to November, they don't stop for anything. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world, who's getting married, what sporting event is in town. They're there to harvest their crop, obviously plant their crop, grow their crop, but that's what their life is literally is all about 24-7, 10 months out of the year. With the size and scope that we have as Nutrient Ag Solutions, it looks like you covered a pretty wide diversity of crops and geographies in the leading the field work that's going on. And so how is it different interacting with some of the smaller acreage-wise growers when you're in California, say, for some of the specialty crops versus like that large beef producer in Kentucky? When you look at the scale of it, right, I think the apricot farm was like 800 acres or something like that, which doesn't sound crazy, but it's an orchard. It's full of a bunch of trees. And then when I walked into his packing factory and I saw those apricots going out to Trader Joe's and all these places throughout the country, and I said, how many of these things are you packing a day? And he said, well, right now we're doing 4 million a day. I grew up in textiles. I grew up where we were doing 30,000 yards of cloth a day. And so in my mind was spinning and I'm looking at all these apricots and I'm looking at, you know, 40, 50 folks in there that are making the magic happen to get it out to consumers like us. I was blown away that that amount of acreage could produce that many apricots. And they had three or four different kinds of apricots they were picking during that part of the season. And then you go to, you know, some of the farms we were just on a 25,000 acre cotton farm. I had no idea that there were 6 million cotton farm acres available anywhere in the world, not to mention just in the state of Texas. And the state of Texas produces 75% of all the cotton for the United States. So to be standing there and to be this you know little person in the grand scheme of things of everything that goes on in the world to put clothes on our back, put food on our table, you know, to keep the livestock alive that ultimately ends up on our table. It's very rewarding and humbling to see how hard these men and women work to be able to provide us food. What I really like about it is you got to travel all over North America. You got all the way out west to California. You got all the way down south to Texas. You got all the way up north to Alberta, Canada, and all over the upper Midwest as well. So can you take us through some of the sites that you got to see and list off some of the takeaways that you had, you know, starting in maybe Champaign, Illinois? Yeah. Champaign, Illinois was just the number one takeaway from there for me was the color of the soul. You know, I've been around this country. I've been fortunate. I think I visited 48 of 50 states that are out there. And I was just blown away by the color and you would drive 20 miles and it would change colors. And they were you know, very proud of the soul that they have there and the corn that they're able to grow in that particular part of the country. But when you look at like Canada, I had never seen canola grow in my life. And when we got there and we stepped off the plane and we drove 30 minutes outside of Calgary, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's just this yellow sea of gorgeousness. And I had on boots, thank goodness. I was not aware how wet it would be in the, in the <laughs> canola. And so the director said, hey, we're going to shoot you in the 
middle of this canola. And I was like, man, this is going to be a really cool shot. I'm going to walk out in the middle of all this pretty yellow canola. I take the first step and it's like I stepped into a swimming pool. And 7,000 mosquitoes came up from the ground. <laughs> and growing up in South Carolina, being a big hunter, I'm obviously used to being around mosquitoes. I've never seen that many mosquitoes in my life. And I've got in a little earpiece and the director's like, hey, Brett, stop for a minute. I'm like, no. I can't stop. A, I'm waiting in water out here. And B, there's a million mosquitoes chasing me. And if I stop, I think they're going to pick me up and carry me off. But everywhere we went, Dusty, throughout the country in its own own respect, there was something beautiful about it. I mean, even Lubbock, we were just in to see a cotton that we saw. And I think the biggest thing is people literally were excited to see us. They were excited to showcase their farms and their operations. And you could see it in their eyes how proud they were. Speaking of getting your feet wet, I understand you got to get your feet out into the cranberry bogs in central Wisconsin as well. And that's maybe a type of agriculture that a lot of folks aren't familiar with. What'd you learn out there? What I learned is there's millions of cranberries in one little square inch. It is insane how many of those things grow down in those bogs. We weren't there when they were flooded. And I begged Nicole to send me back there when they were flooded so I could get out there in the middle of it and see what it's like to harvest those things. But again, just a super gorgeous part of America. And I'm a big cranberry eater and I had no idea how those things came about, you know, dry cranberries and to be on a farm where they're growing exclusively for ocean spray. Again, an eye-opening experience and, and, and super nice people. I mean, we were dealing with two generations of folks there. She gave me cranberry cookies and I ate all of them. Nobody else got any. So yeah, it was definitely fun. So we always get this question in the field, Tom, right? What's the one thing? And so we often ask the same question of our guests on the podcast of what is the one thing that you would see as the misconstrued assumption about agriculture in North America after being involved in these leading the field? I I think the misconstrued is, man, these guys are optimistic people and their livelihoods depend on relationships they have with supplier partners. They depend on their labor workforce. And more importantly than any of that, they depend on really good weather. And when they don't get good weather, it creates a lot of stress in their lives for their families and their employees and even their existence. And when they get good weather, they're celebrating, right? So, I mean, we were just at the cotton farm out there with Jake and his dad, Bill, and they They were having a really tough year. The drought in Texas was kicking their tail. And I've never seen a guy getting his tail kicked that smiled more than Bill did. He was uh, just a super optimistic guy and happy as he could be to still be farming. And just the pride that these guys carry is something that I can't describe. You're going to be able to see it watching Leading the Field, how excited these people get talking about farming, their operation, the crop they're growing. And that's really the only way to explain it. That's actually a great point to bring up here. How do people find Leading the Field? That's on the Nutrient Ag Solutions YouTube page. Where can they go? They can go to Farm Journal, find Leading the Field. They've got their own YouTube page there. And obviously, NutrientAgSolutions.com also has Leading the Field. And three episodes are out right now. we got four more dropping really soon. Can't wait to see those. Brett, you know, I've been a part of farming my whole life. So I'm 63 years old. I grew up on the farm, still farm today. And I think sometimes people view farmers as some type of commercial growers and all their concerns about is how much they can grow on an acre. But I know from my experience, farming is about protecting the resources and and watching after the ground and really legacy. How can I make it better for the next generation? I'm just wondering, all these different growers, did you find that kind of as a common theme through most of them? I really did. And Nikki Winty out at Winty Vineyards is probably the best example I can give you. You know, we rolled up to her vineyard and there is a line of absolutely gorgeous olive trees. 
trees and next to the olive trees are her grapevines. And as we started talking about various things, I literally asked a question. It seems like the grapevines are dying the closer they get to these olive trees. And she said, these olive trees were there hundreds of years before my grapevines were. So they have the right to be here more so than necessarily even I do. But as she started to talk about, to your point, the soil and taking care of the grounds that she's working on and farming on, nothing goes to waste out there. They are that efficient in terms of sustainability and not having anything that's not utilized, even down to the way that they water the vines. So I definitely saw a big sense of pride because if the farm don't have the soil taken care of, what is their crop going to be like for the next generation? There's not going to be anybody to utilize bad soil. So we were just on the cotton farm again, and they were rotating cotton to corn to, again, take care of everything and be able to manage those efficiencies and obviously the yield. But at the end of the day, they realize without the soil, there is no farm. Well, and you bring up a great point too, because, you know, again, getting to travel all over North America and see these different practices taking place on different farms, I would imagine you have a new appreciation for how different and how fields and farm specific agronomic and sustainable practice recommendations have to be. The biggest difference is I think everybody defined it differently depending upon what they were growing and what they were doing and what they were trying to protect and take care of. But at the end of the day, they all honor it and they all certainly understand the importance of it. And I think my biggest takeaway, sustainability has become the hottest word in corporate America in terms of my endeavors right now. And I didn't start here hearing it until recently. It's very obvious to me, sustainability has been an important part of these growers' lives their entire life. It's just the rest of us are just now hearing about it. So you've talked a lot about the growers and what you learn from the growers as you're out there. We work with our crop consultants in the field as we try and get these sustainable practices, whole acre solutions out there. What did you observe as the crop consultants and the growers were interacting in your times on the farm? The biggest thing I took away from that was the word trust. These growers know that these crop consultants know what's best for their particular crop and their product. I'll take it back to, again, cotton's fresh on the top of mind. The farmer literally said, we are producing better cotton because we are getting better Dynagro seed. And he is relying solely on his crop consultant to know what he needs if they start experiencing insects, to know what he needs if they start experiencing different challenges. And it was comforting. You could see comfort and trust built into their dialogue. You know, they cut up like their family members, but at the end of the day, you realize that the only way for the crop consultant to succeed is if the grower succeeds. Well, Brett, we are here in Charlotte for a reason. And we are all dying to learn about the other facets of your career that we talked about, particularly your career as a NASCAR spotter and everything that that entails. But first, we've got to step away for a quick break. And then we're going to be back with more from Brett Griffin here on The Future Faster. FarmSmart is the core of Nutrient Ag Solutions Sustainable Agriculture Offerings. Leading the field with growers to record positive environmental impacts while identifying and embracing new revenue streams. In leveraging practices and products and recording your outcomes, your reward for making informed agronomic decisions will be waiting for you in our digital sustainability platform. The data you input can help set a baseline, identify opportunities for continued improvement, and help qualify you for market access opportunities. We're here to maximize incentives and help ensure the legacy of your operation. Getting started with FarmSmart is easy. Log in or create an account with Agrable, then track your data and get paid. Getting started now means we can get to the future faster. FarmSmart, 
where sustainability meets opportunity. NutrientActSolutions.com slash FarmSmart. This is The Future Faster, a sustainable agriculture podcast by Nutrient Ag Solutions. I'm Dusty Weiss, along with Tom Daniel and Sally Fliss, and we're here in Charlotte with Brett Griffin, host of Nutrient Ag Solutions' new video series, Leading the Field, also a NASCAR spotter, entrepreneur, and podcast host. And Brett, as we mentioned in the intro, you've got a few irons in the fire, some business endeavors that you got, but the one that started them all is your job as a NASCAR spotter. Now, for anyone who isn't familiar with the sport, can you elaborate for us on what a NASCAR spotter does? Yeah, so we as spotters stand up typically at the highest point of the racetrack with the best vantage point. We can see the entire racetrack and we've got Two things in mind. Number one, keep our drivers safe, which means keep them out of wrecks, right? Keep them out of trouble. Number two, help him finish as, as high as he can in the running order. So it's how do we go faster? How do we pass cars? How do we navigate pit road? And how do we go about the race in general? So if you're a football fan, it's like we're the offensive coordinator. We've got a two-way headset where we're talking directly to the driver and we're essentially coaching them throughout the two to four hour race, depending upon what day it is. Kind of the eye in the sky, just keeping an eye on general strategy and making sure that everything goes smoothly down on the track by using what you see from up there. Yep, absolutely. We are definitely the eyes in the sky and the way these cars are built these days for safety reasons. And those are good reasons, by the way. These guys don't have the peripheral vision they used to have. They don't have the ability to turn their heads as much as they used to due to the Hans device that they're wearing, the head and neck restraint system. So we essentially are their mirrors and we're the eye in the sky, just like you said, to try to help them get to the front. Now, that's not a job that a lot of people have held. It's certainly not on my resume, but I know you've told the story before about how you wound up in that career. You've told that on other platforms, but it's too good not to share again. How does one become a NASCAR spotter? That's the thing, man. There's only 40 of us in the world, right? So uh, when I broke into the sport in 1999, I was on the marketing side of the business working for Sitco Petroleum Band-Aid brand, doing a lot of their marketing and PR efforts. And long story short, we had a spotter that wasn't able to show up on race day and Back then, we didn't travel with 30 people per team like we do now. We had eight to 10 guys. And if you worked on the race car, you also were on the pit crew. And I was standing behind the wall, obviously doing PR for the Wood Brothers. And Eddie Wood looked at me. I'll never forget it. And he said, you're spotting today. And I was like, I'm not spotting today. I mean, we're in the Cup Series level, right? I grew up around dirt track racing in South Carolina. I grew up going to NASCAR races as a fan. Obviously, I've been working in the sport at this point for two years. But by no means am I qualified to be handed a headset. And do a race, but we were allowed in New Hampshire. I think I went and threw up behind the concession stand because I was so nervous. I'll never forget. We finished 16th that day, and the driver said, Elliot Sadler, he said, Man, you did a great job. I'm like, You're just being nice. There wasn't anybody else to do it. I had to do it, right? And over the winter, he and I worked out a deal for me to come spot for him. So the second race I ever spotted in my life was a Daytona 500. And when you look at the spotters in general and how they got there, my career path is not one that's typical. Most guys grew up either racing themselves and then transitioning into spotting as a racing career went away. Or they grew up spotting at a short track, you know, say in Radford, Virginia, New River Valley. And then they moved to Charlotte and they started in the truck series and the Xfinity series and ended up in the cup series. I started in the cup series. My second race ever was a Daytona 500. Tom, that sounds so much like what's going to happen on a farm family operation, right? Where it's just who's the person that we can pull to do this job because the work's got to get done that day. And I'm sure you saw that as you talked with growers in the field and our crop consultants in the field too. It's just jobs got to be done today. Who's going to do it kind of thing. Next man up, right? Yeah, no, exactly that. But also when you talk about being the second set of eyes and ears for a driver, you know, we kind of play a similar role with how we
we support our grower customers with agronomic support. So how critical would you say it is for you to have a trusted relationship with the driver when that green flag drops? Look, man, when we're at restrictor play races, super speedway races, we're a 200 mile per hour game of chess and we're inches apart. And if I tell my guy to get up, clear high, move, if he doesn't move, when I say move, he's going to get wrecked. If he hesitates and then moves up, he's going to get wrecked. Or if he hesitates and doesn't move up at all, they're going to pass him. So the trust is key. You know, having worked with Elliot Sadler, Jeff Burton, and Clint Boyer for the majority of my 20 plus year career, the longer you're with them, the more things you tell them that come to be. Because if you're telling them something they can already see and they already know, you're not any good to them. You've got to be able to tell them what's about to happen or things that they can do to make what's about to happen better for them. So as that happens over time and you start telling those guys things, they start moving on instinct. You know, Elliot and I won a lot of races together at super speedways and plate tracks. You don't have that without the spotter driver trust. Clint and I had a lot of success as well. And it just comes down to like we were talking about earlier, trust. It's a big deal in our sport in terms of the communication that we're giving the driver. And then on the other side of that, we actually wear four radios. So we have one radio, we're talking to the driver. We have a second radio where we're talking to the crew chief. His job is to make the car go faster. We have a third radio where we're listening to NASCAR. NASCAR tells us when the caution's out, when we're going green, who has a penalty. They're running the procedure of the actual race. They do that through us. They don't have any other way to tell the driver different communications. So they will radio on their channel, tell the spotter of the 31, he needs to do this. Obviously, then my job is to inform the driver, right? And then our fourth radio is a lot like a pilot in an airplane. We listen to ourselves so that we know our audio is clear. We know our cords are working. We know our transmissions are working because if we start having problems on the radio and it happens, it seems like once a month, there's a lot of guys down there on our channel and all of those two-way radios can communicate outwards right? So if we hear a problem, we have to immediately be able to eliminate that we're the problem. So that's why we wear so many radios. So we've got a lot going on, so to speak, throughout that four-hour process. So Brad, at super speedway tracks, you know, like Daytona, Talladega, you're telling the drivers that are going 180 and you said up to 200 miles per hour, when they're just inches of space to go up and down on that track, in that moment, you have their lives in your hands. What kind of trust relationship do you have with that driver? I mean, how long does it take for that driver to give you that amount of trust? I tell you, Tom, the best situation I could have been in when I started spotting is Elliot and I had known each other for two years and we'd spent a lot of time together away from the track, you know, at sponsorship dinners, at sponsor appearances. So he and I had a personal relationship. So when I went to work for him spotting, it was really easy in the sense of we already knew each other. We were already friends. And so he and I had a deal where he had a motorhome, right? So he he would sleep in the back in the master bedroom. I'd pull out the couch every night and we flew together every single Thursday night to the racetrack every Sunday. Sunday night home. So a lot of briefing, a lot of debriefing and a lot of investment. And that's probably the biggest difference I've had throughout the majority of my career is the guys that I've worked with were really, really, really good friends of mine and really close to them. So it wasn't just a race car driver out there flipping. It was one of my best friends. And those are really weird situations to be in. So not only did I have a job to do in my mind, I also had a personal responsibility to them, to their families, to their mother and fathers to get them home safely. And the last thing a spotter wants to do is call a wreck. Have I caused wrecks in my career? 
Absolutely. Did I sleep the next three days? Absolutely not. Because we're different than, say, football, right? If Tom Brady throws an interception, he waits four or five minutes, he gets the ball back. If I cause a crash, my car is done for the day with potential more problems other than just the actual crash. You finish last. You don't get to come back out of the garage to finish your day. So it's a huge amount of responsibility. And believe it or not, when you're working up to the start of the race, you do feel some of those nerves. But once you say green flag and you're in the moment racing, you forget about all that. It's literally just about performing. So when you talk about that relationship, I mean, it takes time to build that relationship. I think very similarly to the way our crop consultants Mm -hmm. work with a grower. Those relationships are very personal because in almost every case, our crop consultant grew up in the area he came from. You know, those are the people he grew up with, he goes to church with, his kids go to school with. And every decision that that agronomist makes or advises that grower to do can impact the economic sustainability of that grower, whether or not he's going to make a living that year or not. So it's no different from making the decision that one wrong move could flip a car, but one wrong recommendation could limit a guy's ability to make a living for his family. It is. The crop consultant's reputation is on the line every time he or she makes a recommendation. No differently than every time I tell a guy to go high or go low. If I tell a guy to go high and something bad happens, the next time I tell him to go high, he's going to be a little hesitant, right? So same thing with the growers. They're buying decisions that pertains to you guys consulting with them. Well, and you bring it back to those whole acre sustainability solution recommendations of we're asking growers in these sustainable solutions to do something different than what they've always done. And there's got to be that trust and confidence because if you make that wrong recommendation, we've talked about this before, Tom, if you ask a grower to do a new practice, cover crops, no-till, change nitrogen management, and it doesn't work, they're not going to talk to you the next time. And we're not going to make that progress together and get to the sustainable outcomes that we need to see. So it's a big deal. I saw firsthand that crop consultants are more about partnerships than they are about pushing products. They want to tell the grower something that they know is going to work. And they're not trusting a lot of third parties to do their R&D. You guys are doing it yourselves so that when you roll it out, there is that trust factor there. I mean, I heard it firsthand between the crop consultant and the grower talking to each other on these farms. In that vein of building trust, I mean, you've spotted for some really accomplished and popular drivers in the sport, Elliot Sadler, Jeff Burton, Clint Boyer, and all that. But I would imagine that when it comes to building trust with the driver, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution either. So what about those drivers and what about the way that you work with them enabled you to build that level of trust with three very different people? I think it's just personalities. You know, I mean, when I went to work for Clint Boyer, he and I were already going to Harley Davidson Bike Week down in Myrtle Beach together. We were going on skiing vacations together. So again, there was already that personal relationship. When I went to work for Jeff Burton, which was after Elliot Sadler, I knew Jeff. I'd known him for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, but we didn't have a close personal relationship. And I'll never forget his motorhome driver came up to me after a few weeks and he's like, Jeff paid you a really big compliment today. And look, drivers don't ever tell spotters how great they do unless it's on TV. (laughs) and it's a PR stunt, right? But his motorhome driver came up and he's like, Jeff said he's never had a spotter hold him accountable like you do on the racetrack. When he makes a mistake, you'll tell him and you'll ask that he not make that mistake again or that he not make that mental block, you know, mess up the rest of his race. So I've always been... 
and this is thanks to just my life in general. I've always been a guy to tell you like it is. And if you don't want to hear what I think, then don't hire me to give my opinion. And and we're in that position now with Justin Haley. You know, he's uh, new to the Cup Series in terms of being full time. And I was brought in because of my experience. I didn't know Justin that well. He and I have got to be friends. We hang out a lot together away from the racetrack now. Like that's what it takes to really work well, because you cannot be all in water with your spotter and driver. It will not work. There's too much on the line. And the spotter is the guy that is helping guide you through accidents and helping guide you on pit road when a car may be on fire. There's all sorts of variables that are always out there. Some are dangerous, some are not, right? We're selfish people when the race starts. We want to win. We're not like a typical sport. There's not one winner, one loser. There's one winner and 39 losers, right? So it's hard to swallow that, but spotters can help in certain situations achieve better results. You know, when we get to Pocono, Pennsylvania, the restart's over, we settle in 12th. There's not a lot I can do to help my guy. But if we're at Bristol, Martinsville, Talladega, Daytona, a lot of those places where you run close together, we make a huge difference. You know, speaking of partnerships, Nutrient Ag Solutions has been a sponsor in NASCAR ever since 2019, and you've been leading the integration and management of that partnership ever since. At the time, what was your rationale for why NASCAR would align and resonate so much with the Nutrient Ag Solutions customer base? I think there are two things that stick out in my mind, maybe even three, when we you know started the partnership with NASCAR. Number one, there's a lot of growers and farmers out there that love our sport because we're in rural America. We started in the South. We raced all over this country now. And there's just a lot of growers who love the sport of NASCAR. We also get to visit a lot of really awesome markets that are close to where you guys have big farming operations. You know, your customers have big farming operations. Obviously, we're here in uh, in Charlotte now. There's a lot of farmers in the Carolinas. We go to Texas. We used to race in Iowa. This next year, we're racing in Chicago. Obviously, Illinois is a great state for farmers. And then at the end of the day, where we've had the most success is the amount of engagement that we've had bringing our customers, the Nutrient Act Solutions customers, to the racetrack because our sport does a better job than any other sport. We don't just stick a billboard out in center field like you're at Cubs Field and hope somebody sees it on TV. We take these guys and gals into the locker room and we take them onto pit road. They get to sit on the pit box during the race. They get to meet the driver literally as he's climbing into the car, get their picture made with him. You're not going to do that in football. You're not going to do that anywhere else. So I think the NASCAR sport culture in general, the way we treat fans is like nothing else out there. And I've been fortunate to work in a lot of different entertainment venues. And I'm telling you, NASCAR's number one with fan experience. Nobody does it better than we do. So in the last four years, how has that landscape changed? We've been through a lot in the last four years with everything. So how has providing that experience, getting growers involved, getting crop consultants involved changed as all of the things we've been through in the last four years have changed? It's changed a lot. And I say that because Elliot Sadler and Ross Chastain were our first two drivers. We have both those guys driving our car the first year and Elliot was retiring. So the last NASCAR race Elliot Sadler will ever run was in a Nutrient Act Solutions paint scheme in Las Vegas. And obviously Ross Chastain, big farmer out of Florida, big watermelon farmer. And when we looked at the program, back then and we aligned the program with guys that we knew could tell the Nutrient Act Solutions farmer and farming story. And that was very critical as we moved in even to the Burton era with Jeb and his dad Ward. However, when the program you know came back this January, it was decided as a group let's focus on winning. And so we went and got a California driver, AJ Amendinger. We're focused on winning. And I could tell you, if you want to get people excited about coming to the race, have them come to the race with a chance to win. I see your eyes lighting up, Dusty. Like when you talk about winning and that's what we all want to do, right? Whether we're farming or we're racing or we're being a crop consultant or we're being a spotter, we want to win. And I think that's been the biggest gain that we've got going into even next year is we're around a winning program. We're around a winning driver. And we know when we show up on television and we 
we show up with people at the racetrack, we got a chance to win. So with the sponsorship, we want to reach the growers and the crop consultants, but like with leading the field, part of what we want to do is reach the people who are consuming the products we're helping growers produce. How has that audience in NASCAR changed and who do you feel like we're reaching in that consuming public versus that connection we have with growers in the experience we're providing? NASCAR as an industry has done a really good job of chasing a new fan, right? And that obviously are fans of different time zones. It's fans from different demographics. But at the end of the day, our core fan base is still the hardworking blue collar and gray collar American. It's not the white collar American. I don't care how bad they want it to be. And I don't (laughs) care how bad they want everybody in the city of Los Angeles to love NASCAR. It ain't going to (laughs) happen. Our fan base is still built around that work ethic. So with leading the field, my social media in the last few days, has been nothing but positive in terms of thank you for doing this. Thank you for telling the story of these farmers. Thank you for telling us why it's important that we understand that's not just a piece of beef laying on the counter in a grocery store. That was blood, sweat, and tears from a family that did everything by all means possible to give you a safe steak to eat at the end of the night. So our NASCAR fans are curious, down home, good old people, just like farmers. You know, you can't say it enough that food does not come from the grocery store. It comes from the grower. It comes from the farmer comes for the person raising that beef. But you mentioned before that your driver, A.J. Allmendinger, he doesn't have that agricultural background. At least he didn't when he started driving for Nutrient Ag Solutions. So as he has been now driving the 16 car in that Nutrient Ag Solutions paint scheme, and as he's been getting that exposure to the growers that come out to the activations and all the other opportunities that he has to learn about farm culture, how has that changed him, would you say? I tell you what, and I can say this with confidence, I think he has a much bigger appreciation than he probably had, you know, six, eight months ago. And his wife, you know, she came from a somewhat of an agriculture background and she said she'll come on leading the field anytime we want. <laughs> so uh, I think he's been uh, very open to becoming smarter as it pertains to agriculture. And look, we don't hire and, and sponsor AJ Amendinger for him to be an agriculture expert. We hire him to win races and thank God he's good at it. So Brett, you've worked with multiple different sponsors and people that have created a brand identity using NASCAR as that key, right? So why should any brand in your mind still consider NASCAR as their build the brand platform? Tom, that's a great question. And and I'll answer it with the first thing, which is our season is longer than any other season in sports. We start in realistically January with preseason testing, and we do not finish until just before Thanksgiving. So we have 10 plus months out there that we're able to take brands and share those brands nationally, not locally, not regionally, nationally throughout those times. Obviously, we've got great broadcast partners with Fox and with NBC. That's our two biggest guys right now in terms of folks who are broadcasting races. We've got content every single day of every single week. We don't just play on Sundays like the NFL. You know, we've got obviously a social media reach and we've got personalities and we've got guys that you can take into the marketplace to have dinner with your farmers. Or I was just on the phone with an offer pad client of mine who they're in the business of selling real estate right throughout the country. And they want to align their brand with top notch brands. And there's no other sport in America where you can sign up and be around this many Fortune 500 companies. And at the 
the end of the day, and this is what I get back to it all the times, it's about our fans. All right, we have the best fans in sports. They're brand loyal. You guys are sharing your story. Obviously, taking care of your employees and your farmers is top of mind, but you have a lot of consumers right now that know a lot more about farming, and it's because you guys are here. And I can't speak for myself in saying this, but it's been truly humbling to see what all goes into the agriculture side. Again, I grew up farming watermelons. I mean, I knew about hoeing a watermelon, driving a tractor, and loading them on a trailer and going to sell them. I had no idea the science and the people that are involved to take something that sounds so small, the word watermelon, and for it to be so important across just all the platforms. And our sport can tell that story better than any other. Well, Brett, this has been a really incredible story that you've shared with us so far here. We did. We wanted to try one last thing before we uh, called it a podcast episode here. We want to try a little bit of word association, kind of like a lightning round here. I'm just going to pitch you a word or a phrase, and I just want you to throw back at me the first thought or phrase that pops into your head. I felt a lot of tests growing up. (laughs) It's not the ink Am I getting graded on this thing? or is this Okay. All right. We just want to see what pops into your head here. So uh, going from the top here on the word association, the first one I want to throw at you is focus. Oh, that's a tough one. To me, man, focus is don't screw up because if you're not focused, you're going to screw up. I tell my little guy all the time, he's 10 years old and plays a lot of baseball and we'll watch videos of people in slow motion and you can see the focus in their eyes on television, right? And I'm like, man, that guy's focused. And I think it's the fear of screwing up. Or conversely, you can see when they lose that focus. Yeah, Yeah, very true. What about teamwork? Teamwork makes a dream work. How about determination? Willing to fight. Nutrient Ag Solutions. Amazing company that feeds the world. Leading the field. Exactly what it means. Never settle for second. Second is the first loser in our world. All right. Here's one we wanted to throw at you. Okay. Elliot Sadler. Best friend. There you go. Yeah. AJ Allmendinger. True competitor. He is not going to be happy unless he wins. Ross Chastain. He's talented. Twitter. My happy place. I love to get on Twitter and stir stuff up. That's what I've heard. (laughs) You're going to have a new follower after this is all done. Colleg Racing. A growing family. Finally, the number 16 Chevy Camaro. Fast, or at least it better be. Well, there we, we go. Hope so. <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. It better be. Beautiful paint scheme. That's what I would have come up with. Well, Brett, I'll tell you this. You said that there's always new stories coming out of NASCAR. And similar to that, there's always new stories coming out of the world of agriculture. We're really, really happy that you're the one telling them on leading the field. That's Nutrient Ag Solutions new video series. And you are the host of that. So Brett Griffin, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the future faster. Thank you guys for having me. It's been great. That is going to conclude this edition of The Future Faster, the pursuit of sustainable success with Nutrient Ag Solutions. New episodes arrive every other week, so make sure you subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit futurefaster.com to learn more. The Future Faster podcast is brought to you by Nutrient Ag Solutions with executive producer Connor Irwin and editing by Larry Kilgore III. And it's produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For Nutrient Ag Solutions, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.